everyone, welcome to session 77 of the Behavioral Observations Podcast. I'd like to start today's episode with a sincere expression of gratitude. You see, it's been three years, or just three years and a few days, uh, to be precise, since this podcast launched in uh, February of 2016, and it's just been an incredible ride, and I am just deeply grateful for everyone who's taking the time to download and listen to these episodes, all the guests who've taken time out of their busy schedules to answer my questions, and certainly the sponsors who helped make this show possible. So, uh, you know, it's just been, again, uh, an incredible experience, uh, extremely uh, reinforcing from my perspective. Uh, and it's caught on uh, much, you know, beyond my wildest dreams. I think we crossed the uh, million download mark uh, about three or four weeks ago. And again, I, I had an idea that there was a market for this, but I've just been uh, incredibly humbled by the response to which people have found the show and uh, found the what we're doing here helpful. So again, just uh, thank you very, very much. And in today's episode, I have a very special guest, one of the people who has been on the show many, many times, and that is Dr. Pat Fryman. And he joins me today in an unusual format. Uh, what I did is uh, I have this uh, membership program. I don't talk about too, too often on the program, uh, but is a, uh, a monthly membership uh, group, if you will. And uh, about every other month we get together and do a Zoom call. And I usually bring a former guest on and uh, the uh, members get to ask questions directly of, of these folks. And Pat was kind enough to join us for a members hangout uh, several days ago. And I thought it would be great to share this with you. Uh, and, uh, you know, like I said, Pat's been on the show a number of times. He's been very supportive of this. Uh, podcast. And uh, so uh, we get to pick his brain essentially for oh about an hour and a half or so, maybe a little bit longer. So it's a, it was a, uh, we get into all sorts of stuff, ask him all sorts of personal questions about his routines, and his, you know, even down to what he does for exercises and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's a, it was been, it was a fun event. Uh, I'm glad the, uh, the members had a chance to participate in it. Um, if that sounds like something that you're interested in, you can go to behavioralobservations.com and just click on membership to get more information about that. I, I can't promise we're going to have Pat Fryman on uh, every time, uh, but uh, it is a fun t group and I'm uh, really uh, grateful for their support. Um, all right. Uh, one more announcement before we get to today's uh, show is that the uh, ACT Bootcamp for Behavior uh, Analysts is coming up. That's being held in Reno, Nevada, and it's still time to get on board with that. That's taking place March 7th through 10th, and it will feature many podcast favorites like Steve Hayes, Mark Dixon, and Evelyn Gould, and uh, many, many more. And so this is a deep dive. This is full immersion training in acceptance and commitment therapy geared for the everyday practicing behavior analyst. And I think all told there are about 32 CEUs available for this. So you can pretty much knock out almost all your professional development requirement by attending this boot camp. Uh, so again, if you're interested in that, uh, go to behavioralobservations.com and go to the show notes for this episode. And I'll have a link to that plus a $50 coupon for podcast listeners. So I think that's it for opening remarks. So without any further delay, I hope you enjoy this podcast membership hangout uh, with Dr. Pat Fryman. 
Welcome to the Behavioral Observations Podcast, stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. Now, here's your host, Matt Sicoria. Pat, I am beyond excited to have you here. Uh, you, you know, some of your episodes have been um, some of the most downloaded ones that have, we've had um, in the 76 or so episodes that we've published. So the three that you've been on have been uh, very impactful. I get lots and lots of comments to folks, especially the one we talked about uh, kind of uh, more um, self-care and things like that. I think that was session 16, the the, uh, the second one we did. I get a lot of great um, um, great, great feedback on that. But uh, anyway, so to, to have you here to answer questions directly from from uh, folks in our, our cohort here is just a treat. So thanks for joining us this morning. Well, actually, it's a treat for me too, Matt. Uh, you're excellent at this. You're a great interviewer, and I'm just actually delighted to be part of the group this morning, part of the hangout. Awesome. Awesome. So um, he, we talked a little bit yesterday about how this works. And uh, so what I want to do is uh, I'll, I'll probably ask like a, just a, a question to first and then okay. we can get into the, uh, the, the questions here. So um, I, I am tempted to, to, to talk about the video that uh, you did with, uh, with Ryan O'Donnell um, a few weeks ago at Cal Ava, but I think there's going to be plenty of other questions on that. So let me start with something a little bit different. Okay. Um, this might be one of those things that uh, I guess, uh, how shall we say, um, you know, one of those things that people might not know. Uh, so when we were trying to set this up, uh, I said, well, you know, we should do these in the evenings because that's when people are off work and can attend and things like that. And you said, yeah, well, there's a problem with that. I go to bed at nine o'clock and I get up at three in the morning. Now I have to imagine that there's some sort of routine or some sort of logic behind this. Uh, and I've heard different stories of very, you know, kind of, um, uh, various people who, uh, you know, have these, let's just call them unusual type of, uh, routines, I guess, or, 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 uh, practices as it, reg- as it relates to that. Um, can you give us a little bit of insight in terms of what, what, what this is all about? Do you like get up and do like a workout or do you do your writing at that time or what's, what's the rationale behind this? I come to the camp, I, I come to the Boys Town campus at three fifteen and go to Pal Rank Fieldhouse which has a fabulous fitness center for our football team, our basketball team, our girls' sports teams. And uh, the kids will sometimes be coming in there at 5. So I can have a key to that uh, facility and use it as long as I'm out of there before the kids come. So I go at 3.15 and I'm out of there by 5. And so that's, that's the regimen. And I do that seven days a week. Seven days a week? Mm-hmm. What, uh, what, what is the, if you don't mind sharing, what is the Pat Fryman kind of uh, exercise r- routine? What do, you, what do you typically do? Well, I rotate. I, you know, it's pretty standard. I do uh, pushes on one day, pulls on another day, legs, and then cardio uh, and, and CrossFit stuff, and then do it all over again and just keep rotating. I see. And are you like a barbell guy or a machine guy? In terms all of that. Then jump rope and... Uh, TRX. I've got a lot of equipment, and there's a lot of equipment over there at the gym. Um, so I'm usually the oldest guy in any group that I'm part of. So I'm just trying to, to stay with the pack, not necessarily ahead of the pack. And I think fitness helps. How long have you been doing this type of regimen? This particular regimen, five years. Um, I've always had some kind of regimen, but this one's pretty rigorous. 
I see. Um, but with regard to like getting up early and, and getting at it and stuff like that, have you been? Has that just been how you've been living your adult life, or early, but not three o'clock in the morning? I mean, I, actually, I go to bed at seven. You know, so I'm I'm not very fun at parties because you know, good parties don't end at seven. <laughs> I guess that's the opposite of the of, of whatever that saying is. Like bad things happen after two a.m. You know, <laughs> I guess that would be the the opposite uh, extreme of that. So. I give my wife Saturday. And so tonight I'll stay up however long I need to stay up in whatever we're doing together. Um, so I, but I always get up at the same time every morning, no matter what time I go to bed at night. Sometimes at these ABBA events, you know, those can roll into the evening. And <laughs> no, really? <laughs> just a few hours later, I have to get up. I see. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Cal ABBA was painful. Oh, really? The social was, yes. I, I see. I see. You know, I, I have not been to Calaba, uh, but from what I saw on social media, it looks like uh, it looks like it was a, a rocking good time, as they say. So it was, it was fantastic. I don't usually go to the social, but I did. Uh, and a couple of people came up to me while I was at the social and said, be careful, Pat. They all have cameras. <laughs> OK. All right. They pushed me into the middle of the circle, you know, to do some kind of weird dance. And I went along with it for a while, and then I realized there were a lot of cameras out. Did it, did they capture anything that uh, that that might be regrettable? I I, I haven't seen anything uh, I guess posted. Not that I'm. Well, that's the kind of news I want to hear. I see. All right, so maybe maybe we can solve that mystery today. So. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. All right, cool. Well, um, I've had plenty of opportunities to chat with you, so I want to uh, yield my time, uh, if you will, sure. and give people a chance to, to pick your brain here a little bit. So um, just to kind of remind everyone, uh, so what the, I guess the format what, that we're going to do today is to just you know kind of pop your questions into the Zoom chat, and we'll just kind of go through them uh, in order. Um, and uh, when you do ask your question, introduce yourself. If you want to give a little shout out to where you work, uh, please do that. Um, tell Pat what you do and then uh, ask your question. And then we'll try to proceed through these questions in you know, some sort of uh, quasi-orderly fashion. So, um, blah, 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 blah. All right. So I'm looking at the top of the chat here. And... I think our first question, uh, since I'm talking about C-sections, I don't know if that's a question for you, Pat. That might be a different <laughs> one. Um, yeah. Uh, all right. How are you feeling, Megan? Um, all right. So let's get to an actual uh, question for Pat here. Uh, all right. Um, Angela, unmute your microphone, please. And uh, let's, uh, let's, let's chat with Pat here. All right. So I'm just wondering... Um, what you do with sleep, sleep problems. Um, we've got a lot of kids that sleep in their parents' beds and, um, sometimes we'll, we'll put in some reinforcement schedules and things will work when we're there. And, um, you know, as we're checking up, but then they slip back into sleeping in the bed again. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and sometimes we're very successful and, and, uh, you know, things will work. And then sometimes it just sleep, slip back and forth. And, you know, I can understand because sleep deprivation is such a big thing. Mm -hmm. Um, well, bear in mind that the population of children that we serve here in my clinic are typically developing. Um, okay. but we do, uh, contend with this problem very frequently, but we do it in a non-aggressive, um, 
uh, manner. First of all, three quarters of the Earth's population's children sleep in the family bed. So it isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, there's some downsides to it in this culture that don't exist in other cultures. In a lot of cultures, like agrarian cultures, for example, everybody sleeps together in a pile at night. Yeah. And in those agrarian cultures, there are no self-stimulatory habits to speak of. Like if you showed uh, a woman from the Digo Indian tribe a pacifier, she wouldn't know what you were showing her yeah. because they don't use them. They don't have any thumb sucking or skin picking or hair pulling or body rocking or any of those kinds of self-stimulatory patterns of behavior, those fill-in behaviors, because there's nothing to fill in. The kids have regular, uh, like virtual round-the-clock skin-to-skin contact with their caregivers, yeah. so they get yeah. stimulated in that way. But in these industrialized cultures, there's a lot of in-betweens to fill, and kids fill those in-betweens with some of these repetitive behaviors. And my point about that is uh, that regular skin-to-skin contact that occurs all the way around the day isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just doesn't fit in this culture very well. So I try to explain to parents the effect of having their kids sleep in their bed on the children. Um, it also has an effect on the parents themselves. You know, it influences the extent to which uh, they can engage each other intimately and what do they do with the child on those evenings. Um, there's usually a difference of opinion about whether or not the kiddo should be in that bed between the parents, and that's a problem. Uh, but for the kid, him or herself, uh, all the other kids that are going to bed on their own at night are practicing doing something they don't want to do every day. They're practicing something that they're kind of afraid of every day. And as a result, they're doing what I don't want to do and doing what I'm afraid of operants start to develop. But the kiddo that uh, sleeps with their parents is going the other direction. They're not practicing those behaviors. And so they fall behind on that kind mm -hmm. of uh, self-developmental, independent uh, performance uh, repertoire. And that's about as far as I'll go. I will offer parents a, a program if they want to start separating from their kids. We usually use some variation of the, the bedtime pass, um, which I, I'll just describe briefly. I'm, I'm assuming most people know about it, but I'll describe it very briefly. For the bedtime pass, we give the kiddo a pass, put him in bed, and they can use the pass to exchange uh, for one request to be satisfied. It could be to uh, have a drink or visit to the bathroom or a hug, or in this instance, just to sleep in the parent's bed. Once they surrender their pass, they no longer have it. For this program, what we do is let the child turn the pass in in the morning if they still have it for some kind of a reward. But the only way they'd have it is if they stayed in their own bed. And that works for some families and works for some kids. Otherwise, we just use the tincture of time and sometimes go all the way to just shy of 10. And then mm -hmm. just shy of 10, we'll try to make a case that the kiddo is now going to be a pre-teenager, life's going to change, they're, they're getting more grown up, and it's time to do things more independently and try to persuade the child on that basis and the parents on that basis. But it's a soft sell. Um, once people get hooked on that, it's kind of hard to unhook them, and I never want to take a righteous stand about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Makes sense. The other thing is, <laughs> I'm not a parent. But I think I have a reasonable understanding about the relationship between mother and child in particular when it comes to bedtime, when it comes to upset. And what the mother and child have done together is arranged for the child to have a, uh, a couple of operants 
that mom can't ignore. They've sifted through a whole bunch of offers that she can't ignore. You know, so the child might try a couple of little whines, nothing happens. Tries a couple of little cries, nothing happens. So those get like left out of the repertoire. But maybe they say something rather extreme, like, I'm choking in here. Mom goes right in. So the kid's like, okay, I'm choking works. And that goes right into the repertoire. Yeah. And so this kiddo has stuff in the repertoire that by definition, mom can't ignore. Are you following me here? Mm -hmm. We come along yeah. and we say, just ignore that stuff. <laughs> Already by definition, it's yeah. stuff that you can't ignore. <clears throat> so we really have to kind of catch mom in a different frame of mind and use a different attack on that problem. Because um, I never want to have a parent feel bad about their parenting practices. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Yeah. All right. So as uh, indicated earlier, there's a question about the pink sweater mom. So um, Megan, why don't you take it away here? Okay. All right. Thanks um, for joining us on this Saturday, Pat. Um, I, Megan, I do a bunch of different things, but I uh, really appreciate all of the work you've done in the field. Um, I, along with probably everyone else on here, absolutely love the video you did with Ryan with the Daily BA at Calava and shared your story um, of failure. And a lot of people are just wondering if you ever had an opportunity to see the Pink Sweater Mom again, or if there was any follow-up, or if that was just kind of one of those lost opportunities and you've tried to improve on in the future. Yeah, it's a lost opportunity. It was years ago. Um, the day it happened, uh, I did an all-day workshop. And then uh, went to dinner with the staff. And during the dinner, they told me about her. And then I had to get up very early in the morning and leave. I think I was in uh, Quebec. I can't remember what, what uh, Canadian city I was in. I think it might have been Quebec uh, or province. Um, and had I had another day in town, I would have made a, uh, like an attempt to give her a call or meet her or talk to her, but I just left town and kind of left it behind me. Um, I didn't even think about it again for some time um, until this uh, organization called Little Star in Indianapolis asked me to come out and give them a, their staff rally day, an inspirational talk, and that hadn't been my repertoire previously. So I started hunting around in my experience for stories that might illuminate the difficulty of our work and the difficulty that parents face and the difficulty that parents sometimes face with us. Um, and that story just came back to mind. And so I used it that day and got a nice effect from it. Um, and so I've used it intermittently. Ryan uh, kind of took me by surprise. Um, and I agreed to go on camera, but I didn't know exactly what we were going to talk about. And he said, well, I want to ask you, when have you failed? And uh, that just that story just came to mind. So the basis of the question is, did I ever get in touch with her again? And I did not. And the, the opportunity is now lost. Pat, would you just give us like a, a quick rundown of that for those who might not have caught that? And we can certainly sure. Uh, sure. Someone can kind of link that somewhere in the chat too. For those yeah, I was up in uh, Canada doing a workshop for parents of children on the autism spectrum, and uh, the, the, my host told me that the parents some of them anyway, were going to seem angry and frustrated, not with me, but because they're not getting any services. Because up in Canada, services are free, but they're in such demand. There's like this big waiting list. 
these parents are on that list. And so they're a little frustrated. And they said, one of them tends to be kind of hard on speakers, but we don't think she's going to come. So I'm up on the stage putting on my microphone and one of the hosts comes up there and goes, pink sweater, pink sweater. So she's basically saying she's here. So I start talking, caution the audience to hold their questions until the break, think that'll handle it. Two minutes in, a pink sweatered arm shoots into the air. She asks me a question that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, only has to do with her issue, her personal concerns with her kids. Um, privately, I'm thinking that she's rude and selfish about this, but publicly, I answer a question. I don't go into public punishment mode. Two more times, same thing happens. Privately, I'm kind of blaming her for being rude and selfish, but publicly, I answer her question patiently. But the fourth time it happens, that's it. You know, and that, that's it, is it. And I answered her sarcastically and uh, dismissively, and she left at the break. And then later uh, that evening, I found out about her circumstances. And it, they told me that she was a single mother raising two small children on her own, which, you know, that's a sacred being right there. And that the two children were profoundly delayed and she wasn't getting any services. The only chance she had to get services was to come to these workshops and try and get something out of the speaker. So in light of that, I realized you know, that's not selfish. The only shot she had at uh, or the only that, that she was she was willing to like look bad in front of hundreds of people just to get something for her kids, make their life better. And that's not selfish. That's selfless. I, I just didn't see it. You know, I didn't know her circumstances. Um, had I known them, I would have had a much different approach. Uh, and in that video, what I was trying to make a case for is that's the basis of our field to take circumstances into account when we're trying to evaluate behavior, which leads us away from trying to blame people and punish people for problem behavior, because we're not trying to fix the blame. We're just trying to fix the problem, and the problem is ultimately fixed by fixing the circumstances. Um, so in my opinion, our field has basically got a primary quest, and that is to get that view of behavior out into the world. Um, and there's an old way of thinking about behavior, which puts the source of behavior in the person, him or herself, in their morality, their psyche, their character, their personality, whatever, and allows us to blame them when things go wrong. We're trying to correct for that. But that old way of thinking has been around for thousands of years, and it's used by billions of people. Our view has only been around for about 100 years, and it's only used by a few thousand people, so we have a lot of work to do. Well, that was the, the basis for that, that little uh, clip. Does, does that answer your question? Thank you, Pat. That was a good rundown here. So uh, I just wanted to make sure people were up to speed on that. It was a great, great okay. video, very powerful. Uh, and I think the message is, was uh, spot on here. So, um, blah, 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 blah. All right, Celia, are you next? Hi, everyone. Hi, Celia. <laughs> How are you? Um, it's good to see you again. I saw you at Rite University. I don't know if you remember, maybe uh, several months ago. Yeah, We had yeah. a back-to-back. -back. That was an amazing treat for all of us. Um, I don't really uh, have a question, but I'm always trying to sort out social media to learn new stories that you might be sharing with the world. So, um, you know, I was hoping that you can share that. And I just wanted to say that, you know, I, uh, I read your article on public speaking um, mm -hmm. And I try to use those strategies, and they have been very helpful. Oh, good. Thank you. Because yeah, I, I hate public speaking. It's probably very aversive to me, but yes. I have, I still don't like it. Yeah. 
but I forced myself to do it. Good for you. Um, and I, I've been really learning to be very comfortable at it. Well, comfortable me, at the aversive. <laughs> yeah, I got it. Uh, although that's not the game plan. The game plan is not comfort. The yes. game plan is just get the talk done. And bear in mind that every one of us is a vector for the delivery of that way of looking at behavior, the one I just discussed. And there are only a few thousand of us. So it's really important that all of us are good at speaking because as we speak, we're delivering that way of thinking out into the world. And once it's out there, you know, matter doesn't die. Energy doesn't die. We don't know where it's going to land. The more of it there is, the more chance there is that our idea will ultimately disseminate widely. So I'm always happy to hear about people taking public speaking on because um, that's a very powerful way to communicate with large numbers of people. So I appreciate that. Anyway, so you were asking for uh, an anecdote or some, a story? Um, I don't think I really have a question listed above. Uh, so sorry. But um, yeah, I, I wanted to just hear more different stories and, you know, your experiences with um, dealing with parents um, who might have very competing and difficult contingencies that makes it very difficult for them um, to engage in actions towards um, getting those positive outcomes for their children. Um, so I think that is probably one of the toughest challenge that we have um, in parent training because we simply do not live in those contingencies. You know, we meet with them in our sessions and we say goodbye and we hope that um, they will take you know, take up on some of the strategies that we are recommending. But a lot of times um, they don't move in the speed that we would like. And of course that's okay. Um, but sometimes they revert back to um, engaging in behaviors that actually move them away from the outcomes, the direction that we want um, for their children. So a lot more parenting strategies to hear from you will be great. Okay. Well, I can think of uh, at least one, maybe two. One is to recognize that just because somebody has asked you for some kind of help doesn't mean they're looking for help. It, my experience with you know, thousands of people that I've seen clinically over the years is that a very large percentage of people that come in uh, to see me purportedly to get some kind of advice are really there just to be understood because there isn't anybody in their world that fully grasps them and what they're going through in their life and how difficult it is. And once they have that experience with a human being, they're much more, I don't know what the word would be, cooperative or pliable. Um, but if that's their purpose, but they don't state the purpose, it could be missed by us. And then we go right down the fix it route and we're giving them advice, corrective advice when they're not there exactly to get advice then we find out they're not being compliant with the device or with the advice and uh and you can end up with a problematic relationship which could be corrected if we recognize the function of their original visit so my strategy is to try and detect that when that's the case um you know so for example the mother with this pink sweater clearly she had a very very difficult life a very di difficult set of circumstances and had I been more understanding of her circumstances, I think she would have been less rude with her questions. Um, so, I don't know, that's one, I, I don't like to call it a strategy, it's more like a stand that I take with people, and it's consistent with our field, it's trying to find the function of the behavior in front of you. Um, and somebody is formally asking for advice, but functionally only there to be understood, it's really important to know that. 
Um, the second thing is, uh, I ultimately ask every client I ever see some version of the following question. And that is, what's your life about? What's your purpose? Why are you here? When it's all said and done, what do you want to leave behind? If you die before me and I'm chosen to give your eulogy, what do you want me to say? And if I'm talking to a parent, I want to go after the same thing. What's their ultimate aim for their child? What's their purpose for their child? What do they hope for with their child? If everything worked out fine for their child, how would that look? And if you can get them on that track and you're clear that the things they're doing with their child are not necessarily good for their child, they're likely to see it before you even bring it up. Because whatever they're doing may be inconsistent with what they'd like to accomplish with their child. And it will go much more smoothly if it's revealed to them indirectly rather than directly. And all of a sudden they see, oh, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't, uh, well, as in the example earlier, maybe I shouldn't be sleeping with my child since my game plan for my kiddo is to have them be more independent and them sleeping with me every night isn't going to get them independent like that. Am I answering your question? Yes, you actually, yes, address several areas. So, um, so my past experience with some parents is that, you know, timing is one thing, like you said, they're not really ready yeah. to get the solution. And sometimes understanding their function. So I have a parent who is always asking for help, but I think that what I am meeting for her is that I'm giving her attention. Yeah. So in her situation, and she has other situations and issues going on with her life, that time with me is attention. And yeah. I find that once I recognize that, I provide differential reinforcement. So I give her more attention when she actually engages in the mm -hmm. behaviors that we want her to engage in and mediocre attention when she's just asking the question. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah sure it, it does. It took some time to figure that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good for you. That's, that's, that's hard. Good. Yeah, that's a good strategy. Um, hey, uh, I know uh, Darren, uh, I don't... Um, Darren's here, and he's got to go very quickly. Okay. So, Darren, do you have a minute to pop your question in there? Yes, thank you, Matt. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, I can hear you. Fine. Dr. Fernandez, I'm, sorry. I'm, I'm going to my doctoral class in just a few minutes, but okay. I wanted to ask you a quick question because I'm very honored to speak with you about dealing with parents to, to, to stop using punishment. Punishment is, in, in society, we tell people it works. It doesn't work exclusively. Can you give me some a quick or some resources to point to me to how to convince parents not to use punishment or coercion instead of and use reinforcement instead. We're not well, we're not well educated. Okay. Um, first of all, uh, Darren, forgive me for this, um, but I want to correct something you said. Um, you. Go ahead. There's a word. There's a word called punishment, and there are circumstances that bring the word punishment into our conversation, and that's very well defined. It's the administration of stimuli that produce a reduction in a pattern, in a, in a, a, the, the uh, occurrence of a behavior. Yes, yes, sir, that's right. Punishment, by definition, works. Yes. If it doesn't work, it's not punishment. Right. You follow what I'm saying? It's a, uh, an operationally defined term. But is it an effective way to manage behavior? That's really the, ultimately the question. And uh, I think taking a stand against um, punishment as a method for changing behavior is um, going against nature. Um, okay. Nature is a very punishing teacher and a very powerful and effective teacher. 
nature is much more effective at getting children to wear coats than any parent ever will be. Um, right. And I could give you lots of examples where nature teaches us what to do and what not to do. Nature has taught us balance um, because every time we fall, it punishes us for being uh, awkward or uh, careless in how we walk around the world, on the earth. Um, but there's some side effects when you use punishment with children. Right. But not if they're used in balance. Right. So we have a system here at Boys Town where we use a, a, a token economy and we maintain a ratio of point fines to point awards, which is about five to one. You know, five awards, five reinforcing interactions, five rewarding interactions for every punishing or fine based interaction. And that works pretty well for us. And so that's what I aim for with families, not to eliminate their use of punishment, unless it's over the top and abusive, then I have to do that. Um, but rather to try and, and have them use far more uh, reinforcing strategies uh, along with whatever their punishing strategies are so that the, over the course of the day, the ratio for the kiddo um, is dominated much more by reinforcement than punishment. Right, let me, let me, so maybe I should have said coercion instead of punishment. Let me give you one quick example. So I have a mother who wants to cancel her child's birthday because he's not doing <laughs> yes. school. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we get that all the time. Um, well, how old is the kid? He's, he's in kindergarten, five years old. So, and how far away is his birthday? Uh, a couple of weeks. That kid probably can't benefit from contingencies that have more than an hour or two span between them. Right. So canceling his birthday two weeks from now and telling him that now is just going to upset him now and teach him something about what's going on now and not teach him whatever it is, the lesson that she wants him to learn when the punishment is actually executed. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily try to deter her from using, I don't know, a, a punishment-based system. I'd try to encourage her to use something that is almost immediate in time. Um, and I don't know how big the how, how big is the behavior? What kind of problem is she trying to solve? Um, he runs away. He hits people. He doesn't hit people hard. It's a little tap. I mean, it's still not right that he's putting his hands on people. But well, um, I'd also tell her that she is um, building memories in her child's life, and. If she cancels his birthday, he will never forget it. That's true. Does she want that in his memory bank? Or right. maybe she could reach for something that might be easier for him to forget. All right. Thank you, Dr. Fredman. I will tell her that on Monday. Okay. I'm sorry that I have to go. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll reach out to you via email. Thank you, sir. Okay. You bet. Thank go you, to Matt. class. Appreciate tell him you were talking to Pat Fryman. <laughs> I will. Thanks. It'd be a perfect excuse to be late, right? Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Guys. I say an email. Uh, thank you for something else. So okay, all right. Thanks, you bet. Uh, Emily, are you next? I think so. Hi, Emily. Hi. Um, so I'm Emily. Um, I'm in Portland, Oregon. Um, I work at a clinic called Building Bridges, um, providing ABA services mostly to children with autism, um, mainly because our state insurance bill requires funders to cover that for children with that diagnosis. Excellent. Um, 
which is great. Um, although it used to, we used to have a wider range of populations that we served before that. Um, so I hope that that will change soon. Um, yeah. And I've been heavily involved in our state chapter of ABAI, so we're working on that. Okay. Um, so um, I have two questions, but I don't want to take up the time. So I'll ask the first one, and then if there's some time, we'll later ask the second one. Okay. Um, so my question was just uh, a personal one. Um, I've been in the field since 1999 and um, in various roles working with NADA caring for lots of other people's children from typically developing to very atypically developing. Yeah. Um, and next week I'm going to become a mom for the first time. And um, I'm getting a lot of advice, suggestions, people talking about, Oh, what, Oh, you know, well, wait till you see when you're trying to put your kids to bed um, <laughs> all, the, all the way to you're such an amazing BCBA. You're so great with the kids. You're going to have no problems. Um, Obviously, neither of those things are going to be what actually happens, but um, I wanted to know whether you had any, I guess, more kind of act-like advice for um, me kind of moving into this new role and um, not setting too high expectations for myself, but also trying to be kind of the best BCBA parent that I can be when I'm dealing with all those kind of typical childhood issues like sleep and um feeding and everything that, that you deal with as well? Um, well, bear in mind that the strategies that we impart to parents are being imparted because they, they have a problem they want to solve. And let's knock wood here and say, your child isn't going to have those problems. So it isn't absolutely necessary that you use those strategies that you would typically prescribe for the parents that come to see you. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got this sense in this culture that these kids that we're raising are inherently vulnerable to all kinds of threats to their well-being. And it's a, it's a false perspective. Um, they can go out and eat dirt and play with sticks and, uh, and have a late bedtime and sleep in in the morning and eat uh, gummy bears for dinner and still have a perfectly balanced life ultimately. Um, and I'm not suggesting you do all those things. What I'm suggesting is broaden your view of what a good childhood actually is to include the things that formerly were included in good childhoods that are now excluded because there's so much helicoptering and cocooning going on. Um, and give yourself a break. Um, I'll tell you my view on your child. Let's say your child is a typically developing child. In order to make it in the world, he or she only has to be loved in a way that they are rec- they recognize by one person, and that'll be enough for them. I mean, if they have more, great. But if you just have one, that's enough. And then they only have to make it in one environment. They can bomb at home and do well in school, and that'll be enough to get them into their adulthood. Or they can bomb in school and do well at home, and that'll be enough to catapult them into their future. Um, I've got a little, you can't see it, but I've got a little plaque on my wall. Um, It's a summons from the Cascade County Courthouse to me when I was 17. Um, And I went, and I was uh, put on probation, uh, house-based arrest, for a year. And the two boys that were in on the crime that was committed both went to reform school for that year. Um, I have it right at eye level so that when parents sit in that chair, they look at it. 
because the parents that are sitting in the chair think their child's life is over if they get a D. And what I want them to see is, look, that was, that was a big deal in my life, but I'm doing pretty well. Um, and so that's my thought is like, don't over amp on little out of the ordinary or the commonly expected issues of childhood that you get beyond those. Don't over amp on that. Try to set a regular bedtime, try to be consistent, be loving as I know you will be expand their food preferences. Make sure they go to a good school. Don't helicopter, don't cocoon. Use a, use a behavioral principle here and there and use what feels good in the other places. I suspect everything will be fine. And <laughs> after you've done all that with this one, then you'll have a second one perhaps, and you'll realize you did way too much for the first one. You know, a mother, uh, she's got her first child, kid uh, gets the sniffles, off to the ER they go. But a mother of 12, with a 12th one, comes up and got a broken arm, mom looks at it and says, that's not a compound fracture, set it yourself. It'll be like that. Am I answering your question? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Nobody um, knows more about raising children than a mother of 12. They know <laughs> way, way more than we know. Yeah. They know when to hold them and when to fold them. Yeah, and well, and I think, I mean, your the, the comment about um, not helicoptering and then um, some comments as well, uh, like from Celia to let them fail Mm -hmm. to learn from those th those mistakes. And I think those are really important. And both my husband and I shared those values. He grew up in a really, really small rural town with maybe a thousand people. Yeah. I grew up in New York City, very, very <laughs> different environment. Yes, yes. Um, and yet we both had childhoods where we were out on the street playing with our friends, going yeah, to yeah. the park alone, yeah. all this kind of stuff that now people are not. What? Unsupervised about. play? <laughs> yeah. You had unsupervised play? Yeah. Can't believe it. He's like, a play date? What's a play date? <laughs> Just going to play with my friends. Anyway, so, um, but I think that, that that's something that I don't necessarily think enough about in relation to the families that I work with that I'm trying to think more about in terms of sort of the impact that always having somebody supervising right. and looking for those problems has on the children's ability to develop to resilient adults, whether they have special yeah, yeah, yeah. needs or not. So. Here, watch for this. When, you're, when your little one is learning how to walk and he or she falls down, watch for when they look back at you to see if they're supposed to cry. Right. Because <laughs> the source of their upset is going to be sometimes their parent and not what they actually feel because the parents have intervened and they don't know what's going on. But if you leave them to their own devices, they'll just pick themselves back up and keep on walking. Anyway, thanks for the question. Sure, thank you. That was awesome and uh, best of luck and I can't wait to hear uh, how everything goes. So. I'll let you know. Awesome. Very cool. All right. Uh, Miguel, I think you're up. And if I skip anyone, please uh, shoot me a, a message in the chat. Um, so I'm trying to monitor several things simultaneously. And uh, uh, so if, I, I, I may skip over someone inadvertently. So Thank you, Matt. And uh, hi, everyone. Um, I think I mentioned in the chat box that uh, I love Pat's keynote address at Calava, uh, especially in contrast to uh, last year's uh, keynote address. Uh, it was very inspiring. And I also wanted to mention that um, not only was I inspired uh, by the keynote address, but just equally impressed with the fact that Pat did maybe 
another four presentations or so. Uh, after that keynote address on the same day, and then he was seen in the dance floor at the social <laughs> later that day. So just uh, so impressed with you, Pat. Um, but uh, really, as, as someone who for the past few years has uh, had the opportunity to to be in multiple conferences a year, five or five or six conferences a year. Wow. Um, in conversations with, with my peers, uh, I see, uh, I guess, a pattern of uh, very contentious conversations about whether you have a stance on a particular, um, particular, uh, I guess, standard of practice, yeah. uh, things related to, for instance, uh, measurement, or uh, the way in which you explain uh, language um, yeah. and, uh, you know, things related to assessment yeah. uh, and, you know, and different stances on whether are you, are you a, a researcher or a practitioner or, you know, where, where do you place most of your emphasis uh, uh, as a behavior analyst, you know, and how well-rounded you need to be. So, Basically, uh, I appreciated that your message uh, at the keynote was to have a unified message, right, as a, as a field. And so I'm wondering, as someone as influential as you are, whether you would have any suggestions or do you have any plans to get us as a field to get to a point where uh, we agree on most things and maybe, you know, there can be nuances, there can be subspecialties, but, but at its core, we are kind of on the same page. Yes, I got it. Um, yes, uh, it's my mission, actually. The central purpose of my career is to, to fundamentally answer that question for our field. Because my view of our field, it's, it, has, it has a purpose. And we all share that purpose, regardless of what we're doing regardless of our position on assessment or positive peer support or punishment or reinforcement or Skinner versus Cantor or, or uh, uh, Brian Iwata versus Greg Hanley. Um, everybody in the field is up to this one thing, whether they know it or not. And they're all striving to make the world a better place, especially for people less fortunate than themselves. All of the work flows to that. And so everybody in the field is part of that. And all it takes is to recognize that that person you disagree with about some small matter like assessment is up to something much, much bigger than that in their day-to-day -day life. And when it all cashes out, they'll have made a significant contribution, even if they weren't very good at it, because they represent a way of thinking that hasn't existed before. And its widespread dissemination could change the quality of life for human beings on this planet. Because We've had thousands of years of blaming people for problems and then punishing them when they become blameworthy. And our field has a different way of looking at things. And if it were widespread, everybody would be a little more understanding, a little more compassionate, a little more merciful. And so when you're interacting with somebody in the field, just try to, rec try to recognize that even though they have some silly notion about some idea that you cherish, that's a small matter compared to what they're really up to what their career really means, what their influence will ultimately be. Even if they're not very good at the field, they're still so much better than anybody outside the field would be. And I think we just need to take time to recognize that we're, 
fairly small group, and we're all up to some really important stuff, and we're all doing it our own way. Am I answering your question? Yes, yes, uh, definitely you, you are, and I appreciate that. Uh, that's your mission. Um, and I'm hoping and I'm hopeful right, and optimistic about us maybe getting on the same track as a field. It's just uh, we have to be somewhat disconcerting to me that, uh, it, you know, even that I'm attending so many conferences, just seeing my peers, maybe I, I would say waste time, you know. Waste time. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Waste valuable yeah. time. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And, you know, a lot of people that I respect uh, and admire, uh, but then, you know, they don't have the same ways of explaining things and uh, most of their time seems to be spent on trying to prove their own points. And so I, I, I would wish that those people, because there's a lot of um, ambassadors of some of these uh, frameworks uh, that don't necessarily have mastery of those frameworks, mm -hmm. but they're the ones also disseminating the information almost in a dogmatic way, mm -hmm. right? And so I wish that maybe the leaders could step in and have a dialogue publicly, Yes, you know, so that people are, you know, get to see those debates and get the better informed uh, uh, decisions about how to practice in the future. Yeah, uh, and just to see that the leaders are also having a healthy dialogue, and it's not just about yeah. just gathering your people from your own community and your own right. camp. Right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Be that guy. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm the person because I have to say too, um, I I've been in the field for for almost a, well for over a decade, uh, but still struggle with all the information that is now available to yeah. us to consider myself uh, an expert in all those areas to be part of that debate. But I'm not saying be an expert. I'm saying be that guy. Well, what I mean by that is you have a view. It's an ambassadorial view. Be the embodiment of your idea. From this day forward until it's all over, and you'll never know how many people that will influence, but it will definitely influence people. And things tend to be infectious. They, they move uh, in ways that we don't even recognize. So just be that guy, and then we'll know at least one person is going in the right direction. One person has unity in mind. Uh, and who knows, that one person may spawn other people. And pretty soon you may have a movement. So start being that guy. That'd be my advice for you. Thank you. I, I, I will steal that quote, Pat. Thank you so much. Okay. I'll be that guy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a great topic, Miguel. Uh, you know, I always wonder, like, how do we, how do we avoid confusing students and young practitioners, you know, with these different tribes, if you will, verbal behavior versus RFT, standard acceleration charting versus equal interval, you know, uh, as you said, Pat, you know, the kind of, uh, standard functional uh, analysis versus the the isca etc so um yeah it's a great topic and i think it's one that we need to continue to talk about well the thing to recognize is everything you just said has value all of those things produce value there's just this reluctance to recognize that somebody that has a position different than one's own produces value 
it just produces the value in a different way. Um, and it, I think if our field, the people in the field, had their focus on more distal concerns rather than proximal concerns, like what are we ultimately trying to accomplish in the field, not what we're trying, proximally trying to accomplish, um, some of the dissension, some of the conflict, some of the disunity would disappear. It's the same in, in, in every human life. You, if you pay attention to day in and day out stuff too much, then you better hope that day in and day out stuff goes your way. But if you have your attention on your fundamental purpose in life, the day in and day out stuff doesn't matter as much. I don't think Martin Luther King got really, really upset when his household ran out of toilet paper. Because he had his attention on something much, much bigger than whether or not there's toilet paper. But somebody's got their attention solely on what's happening in their day-to-day -day life and there's no toilet paper, it could ruin their day. Well, I think our, what I'm recommending for our field is it become more purpose-driven and that might help with a lot of that conflict. Awesome. Um, all right, LaAsia, Le I think you're up next. Let's, uh, let's uh, hear your question for Pat. Hey guys, I'm LaAsia from North Carolina. Um, I'm sorry my video is so dark. I don't know, I tried to fix it, but sorry. Um, I kind of was piggybacking off of what you already kind of said as far as the advice of making our feel purposeful. But a lot of times I get in situations, for example, I was in an IEP meeting recently, one of the ladies openly in front of a group of people says, well, we usually don't work with ABA, but it's a special, you know, you're a special exception or something along those lines. And I tried to take things personal. And then at the end of the meeting, she had me sign the document, but she listed me as a daycare provider, which I'm not undermining daycare providers, but I'm not one. I'm a BCBA. I was a BCBA in that role. So it, it felt like an insult. So when I was very down and I, I cried a little bit in the car before going to my next session. And I didn't want it to affect me that way, but it did. And I know, like you just said, it's more to what we do with purpose. But when those situations happen, do you have any special advice how you work through outside of just self-talk and, and how to handle that type of, you know, I call it disrespect. But. Well, the, the person uh, is, is uh, predisposed against the behavior of the world. And there's a lot of that. Um, and there's a tendency to want to take that on and correct their view, um, to go after misrepresentations of our field by making the person that purportedly misrepresented us, making them wrong. I don't think that's very effective. Um, now I'm making a, I'm going to use a religious metaphor to make a secular point. You see what I'm saying? I'm not like proselytizing here. I'm not preaching here. I'm just going to use Jesus Christ as an example to make a secular point. When he began to speak what we now call Christianity, not everybody that heard what he had to say agreed with him. Not everybody that he met accepted him. And I don't, no, anywhere in the Bible where he went out of his way to make people wrong. He just became the embodiment of his own idea and gradually recruited more and more followers. And uh, that's what I recommend. And so you get in the, the meeting where somebody is dissing behavior analysis or dissing you for being a behavior analyst. Um, if you become defensive and postural 
at positional, you actually are making their argument for them. Whereas if they see something they didn't expect to see in your repertoire, which is rising above the immediate conflict, um, it could cause a change in heart in them. That's a tall order, but it would definitely have a, an effect on everybody watching what's going on. I'll tell you uh, about showing anger. Showing anger in public is like wetting your pants in public. Every, everybody sees it, but you're the only one that feels it. And it doesn't really have that much of an impact. Well, I wasn't really angry. And I responded very, you know, respectful. And I did. But when I left, I wasn't really angry. I was more sad. You're upset, yeah. 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 Well, uh, and you took it personally. Mm-hmm. It's not personal. What you got to see was how what she was, what she was saying affected her. And that's how I recommend listening to people. Listen to people to see what they're saying, see how uh, what they're saying affects them. Don't see how it affects you. Then you're at risk for taking things personally, and you're at risk for not hearing exactly what they were saying and not getting to know them just a little bit better so you can work with them a little more effectively. And it takes some practice, but you can do that. And ultimately, you know, you're going to want to be a leader. You're going to want to be a mentor if you're not already. And it's really important for leaders and mentors to not take things personally when they're interacting with people. Um, And that's one way to do it, is listen for how what somebody is saying is affecting them. Don't listen for how it affects you and what it means for your field. Mm -hmm. Am I addressing your question? Yes. And I'm aware of that, and I'm definitely working on it. It's one of the things that needs to be worked on. You have a big heart. You're going to be a great ambassador. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Emily, I know you have another question, but I want to get to some other folks who haven't had a chance to ask yet. So um, I'll come back to you in a second. So uh, Heather, let's, let's hear from you. Hi, everybody. Heather's in the car. (laughs) Yes, I'm in the the car. I've got a friend driving. We're going to Disney right now because we're on the winter break, but um, (laughs) I work in a school setting and I felt yeah, I felt very confident, you know, coming in, starting to work with kids. It's been six years of that now, and now I am starting to work with adults more, um, a lot more performance management type stuff. Um, and I've learned some, that contingencies with adults are sometimes a lot more complex than they are with kids. Yeah. So um, I was just wondering, what advice do you have for someone that works to train people that um, may, maybe not ready to take on their position. They're, I'm not sure I got that question. Um, they're not ready to what? We have a lot of staff that, well, we have a, a school of 250 students with special needs and 140 staff. Okay. Um, a lot of those staff are hourly staff that kind of come in with little to no experience right. um, in the field and have a lot to learn. And with those, with those particular staff, I find that a lot of um, their their motivation and their function of their behavior um, ends up detrimentally affecting students. So that's kind of what we are where we're starting to make some changes. Um, so how would you work with that? Well, um, that just sounds like they're not doing a very good job. Uh, 
And that almost sounds like a human resources problem rather than a problem for you guys. Like if, if they're, if what they're doing, when you say harm, I'm not sure what you mean. They're harming students in what way? Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, you know, I wouldn't say like physically. Okay. okay. I apologize. Um, you're in and out. Um, Heather, and I'm only hearing portions of what you're saying. Hey, yeah, yeah, I think what we'll probably do, if, if, you, if you have the gist of what she's getting at and can address that, um, let's just go with that. Well, okay, so I took the word harm or not good for students, uh, maybe more serious than I needed to. But if, in fact, somebody is engaging in practice at work that's harmful in a bona fide way to um, uh, vulnerable clients, that's a human resources problem. You know, that's a fireable offense. Um, and so I would let, let the formal structure in the organization deal with it if that's what we're seeing. However, if what you're saying is harmful in that it's inconsistent with what we think is behaviorally uh, optimal, um, well, that's a judgment call. Uh, and I would be very reluctant to use that language when you're giving the person feedback. Um, ultimately you want them to be effective with the clients or the kids that are at the program or the adults that are at the program. Um, and presumably you have some kind of an incentive system, probably not much, but maybe a little bit of an incentive system to get people marching in the right direction. I would use that as best you can. Um, I don't know how many contingencies you have to work with, um, but they should all be, uh, composed in a way that favors what you want to see and doesn't favor what you don't want to see. Um, and if you don't have that kind of a system, that's where I was, I would go to work. I wouldn't go to work on the individuals as much as I would on the system uh, and try to get the decision makers to allow you to set up a structure for the program that favors the kind of thing you want to see and, and uh, diminishes the payoff for things you don't want to see. I don't know. That's a very abstract answer, but I don't know. I don't know exactly what the program. I don't know what it involves. Um, that's, that's, I worked at. That, oh, that's. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Pat. I'm interrupting you. Well, that'd be actually an elaborate uh, story that might not even be on point. So go ahead. Okay. Um, let's. Uh, let's see. Uh, Brandon Franklin joins us. Brandon, do you want to answer, ask? Brandon. Your question? <laughs> hey, Brandon. Pat, my <laughs> Good to see you. Um, Amen. I know that you and I have talked a lot at length about soft skills. And I think that we as a field have always been <clears throat> very rigid and robotic in the way that we approach certain situations. And I'm glad to see that there's a lot of momentum that has been leading to us approaching situations in a more empathetic manner. And I think especially recently with a lot of this stories that you've been telling and a lot of the things have been coming into your talks. And I think you're becoming a leading voice for us in that aspect in our field. And I, number one, I really appreciate that. And number two, I was just wondering where a lot of your source, what you read, research, where you get a lot of your information or where you could direct us to get better at, um, using those soft skills with parents, schools, teachers, organizations, whoever we may be working with. I've discovered this resource um, that people my age don't access probably as much as they should or could, and that people your age probably do, called YouTube. 
And I just can't believe the treasure trove of riches that are available on YouTube that pertain to this kind of thing. Um, every other video clip seems to have five steps for being more effective with people, three steps for opening up a conversation, 10 steps for making people like you. And you know what? Stuff like that seems a little put off-putting at first blush, mm-hmm. but there's always something in there. And here's what I think people should recognize. If it works, whatever it happens to be, it could be a sermon. It could be uh, like a hot rock massage. It could be something a psychodynamically oriented therapist might say, or it could be something that we do. If it works, somewhere in there is an operative behavioral principle, and that's why it works. All that takes on our part is a willingness to accept the package that it comes in, even though it might be a little off-putting to us, and then go to work and try and find the essence of what's in there from a behavioral perspective and steal it and recognize that the delivery vehicle for whatever it is, the stuff that we ordinarily object to, is probably really effective packaging. And that's one of the things that we've always been terrible at is packaging our stuff. We just don't market very well. And I'll make two distinctions here, or make a distinction here between two markets. One is the scientific market. And when you market stuff to scientists, then the packaging should involve data and technical language, because that's the packaging scientists like. What we do is we take that same packaging and we use it for people that aren't scientists, and they don't like that packaging. And it's perfectly acceptable to use different packaging for people that are in a different market. In fact, it's preferable because that's the only way that we're gonna be able to market effectively. So back to YouTube, it's a treasure trove of stuff Some of the stuff that's really valuable won't seem valuable because of a schmaltzy title for the video, but I recommend kind of mining what's there. TED Talks are great. And then a person's life. And I should have said that one first. You can just like plow through your own life and find anecdotes and stories that have a behavioral principle uh, embedded in them uh, once you take a close look. And then use those stories. Those are the ones that involve you in particular, so they come across as very authentic. Um, and last thing I'll recommend is one way to gather information on any kind of a question is to plant the question in your mind, walk around the world, and the world will give you answers. It's like when people have, a, let's say, a, a Land Rover, they see Land Rovers everywhere. They never see any Mercedes C300s because they don't have one but they see Land Rovers because they're pre-programmed to see Land Rovers. That's, that's just how that kind of mindset works. So you take a question, whatever it happens to be pertaining to what you want to talk about, put it in your mind, keep it there, and the world will start giving you answers to that question that you can put into some kind of a conversation. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that definitely answered my question. I have just a real quick follow-up. What day are you flying into ABAI? Uh, probably Thursday. All right. I'll see you then. All right, man. <laughs> see you. So one of the things that, that came to mind, because I've been thinking a lot about soft skills lately as well, I actually have on my uh, nightstand right now, um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Great book. Great book. Uh, and what, um, and I want to, I think, uh, you know, to your point that you made a, a few minutes ago, Pat, I think 
we as behavior analysts um, uh, kind of downplay the impact of some of those kind of uh, uh, consumer level books have. But, you know, one of the things that struck me, and I'm, all, I'm not too far into it, um, but mo- at least most of the first section of it all revolves around positive reinforcement. I mean, he quotes Skinner. I mean, he quotes Freud and other, other folks as well, but um, Carnegie, I believe, um, uh, makes lots of references to just being a very reinforcing person, essentially, yeah. a dispenser of reinforcement. And um, one of the things I've, I've, I kind of want to do is, is kind of read a bunch of these books and try to distill some of the basic behavioral principles. One other quick point I'd like to make too, and this might be a way, this is from like kind of the marketing world, but you know, I think one of the things that you were saying that, um, that echoed with me is that, you know, as, as scientists or science oriented people, uh, you know, we, we, we tend to look at things in terms of their, their features. And, you know, when you're trying to sell something to, to lay people, um, they want to know the benefits. Yeah. And that's, that's a, that's a, that's a very kind of, uh, tried and true kind of marketing adage. You sell the benefits, not the features. And one of the things that I've certainly learned over the years is that not everyone, and I should say many, many people, perhaps the majority of people aren't swayed by scientific evidence or data or what have you. That information is reinforcing to us as behavior analysts, but um, it, I find it um, oftentimes very uh, unpersuasive when when talking with with people who who aren't oriented towards those types of things. Um, there's a paper in uh, I think the recent Java. Uh, one of the authors is Keith Allen, and what they showed was that when parents are given a choice between process variables, basically the, being those soft skills that we're talking about, how they're greeted quality of the phone calls, the quality of uh, the, the uh, exchange that, that's had before they go into the treatment session, um, and empirically supported treatment. They basically pre- um, prefer sessions where the um, process variables are at a high level more than they do the presence of an empirically supported treatment, which tells me that they're more concerned about how they're going to be treated than they are about the treatment they're going to receive for their child. And it's just something to get better at because we haven't emphasized process variables in teaching our students how to do treatments. We've just taught them how to do treatments. I train my staff on what to do in the waiting room because that's where the appointment begins. As soon as the person, actually when the phone call into the clinic occurs is when treatment begins. And I want that phone call to be spectacularly pleasing to the person on the other end of the phone. Yeah, makes makes total sense. And uh, those are the things we that are so easy to overlook when we're trying to figure out how to yeah. get prepared for a session or organize for a meeting or, or what have you. So, all right. So we're getting, um, so we have some folks on the call who haven't had a chance to ask a question yet. And yet we've got some folks who, um, you know, who are in line to kind of ask their second question. So, um, and I also know that, uh, that I don't want to keep Pat here all day. So I'm just trying to figure out how to make sure everyone gets their voices heard. And if not, we can kind of hit another question or two for people doing round two of their questions. Uh, and at the same time, look towards wrapping this up in a little bit. Uh, could we, uh, 
Say go, go to 1030. How about that? Is that enough time? Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, all right. So having said that, I'm kind of looking at the chat here. Do, 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 do. All right. Um, looks like. All right. So whoever put a second question in there, go ahead and fire away. I'm, I, I think it's going to be either Celia or Emily, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and they're way, way far up in the chat. So <laughs> I'll let you go, let you go first. Okay, um, my second one was just um, a question relating to dissemination. Um, so um, the internet is a wonderful thing and it's also a horrible thing. Um, it What's brings us lots of information and it also brings us a lot of misinformation. And so I have kind of spent a lot of time over the last year really trying to help students um, online, especially in Facebook forums, like understand who are working through the BCBA process, understand the experience guidelines, and not get confused by things that are out there. Um, and then along with that comes um, kind of all of the um, information and misinformation about ABA as a field, as a science, as a practice. Um, and um, there are a lot of people online who are very anti-ABA for very different reasons. Um, some of which are personal, some are which are philosophical. Um, and um, those things may be kind of sometimes in a separate world, but with everybody reading things online, we're now getting families that are coming to us having ABA been recommended by their, um, you know, their pediatrician or the neurologist who diagnosed their child, but they're coming to us with a set of concerns about what might happen when we provide that therapy because of what they've read online. Um, and so this gives me a more personal reason to pay more attention to disseminating ABA with anybody that I can, regardless of whether it's related to work or not. Um, but when I'm speaking, if I'm speaking to someone who doesn't know about it, that's pretty easy. Um, but if I'm talking to people who are interested in listening but still feel very strongly against it, um, I'm trying to find kind of an, an easy way to, to start that interaction without sounding defensive and yet addressing some of kind of the bigger picture, like people disagree that we should be intervening at all with children, especially with things like stereotypy, not understanding why we would want to do that for the child's benefit, um, and then also uh, either misunderstandings or disagreements about specific interventions, some of which are because people have observed or heard about people implementing them really incorrectly, um, and some of which are misunderstanding what's being done when that happens. And so sometimes I'm, I'm just trying to kind of get a better idea in my head of how to handle these things so that I don't talk too much about the big picture, but I also don't want to get stuck arguing about small details in a punishment procedure. So um, I don't know if you have any suggestions about that in terms of I, like your point of saying to listen to where how people are feeling about what they're talking about rather than how it affects you. And I think that ties in well with this. Um, but I, that's my question. I don't think you're going to reason somebody out of something they weren't reasoned into. So if they feel strongly about it, that's an emotionally based repertoire. And if you come at that with an intellectual argument, you'll have a mismatch. Um, right. You might be able to come at them with an emotional argument, but it, 
and would have to have positive emotion in it, not negative emotion. Um, but you might just consider um, letting your work speak for itself. So for the longest time, there was an anti-behavioral position pertaining to kids on the autism spectrum. And then Ivar Lovas published a paper in the Journal of Clinical and Consulting Psychology in 1987 showing that the use of our methodology could not only remediate symptoms, but possibly eliminate them altogether, which spawned a huge opening for behavior analysis to start spreading that treatment around. He didn't argue with anybody. He just demonstrated that there was benefit. And I think that's the most potent possible argument. It's just produce good results and people will gravitate to whoever the source of those results. That's persuasive. But debating with somebody that potentially could be a troll online isn't going to do anything other than ruin your day. Yeah, so I'm, I obviously that's different and I've really avoided those conversations for that reason. I'm thinking more of people who actually want to talk about it in a productive way. Um, so, for example, I have a new client that started recently and um, they, they came to us open and ready to pursue ABA, but they had, they already had kind of a list of things where they're like, well, we don't want you to do this and we do want to do that. And a lot of those were based on what they'd read online and misconceptions. And so for us to kind of move forward, I had to take some time explaining when yeah. we would address those things and why, so that we could agree on a, a goals for the treatment plan. That's so all, that, it's more that situation that I'm talking about. That's always going to be the case. I mean, uh, Mont Wolf wrote a terrific paper in 1978 on social validity. And the point he made was that we have three points of agreement or disagreement with all our clients. One is on the nature of the problem. Then that has to be settled. Are we looking at the same thing? Do we agree we're going to work on that? And if there is an agreement there, then don't go forward and try and work on something where you don't have agreement from your client that that's the problem. Then you need to negotiate what the intervention is going to be. And you have an idea of what you want to do. They have an idea of what they don't want you to do. That has to be negotiated into some kind of a happy medium. And then what's the success going to look like? You have an idea. They have an idea. Try and meet in the middle so you agree on all three things, the nature of the problem, the nature of the intervention, and what a success will look like. And if you get that kind of agreement, then uh, you can make very good progress. If you don't obtain that kind of agreement, you might encounter obstacles you didn't even know were there and resistance that you aren't sure of the source of. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. All right, Pat, it's 11.29. So let me close by just um, observing that you have, in many forums, uh, recommended against doing Q&As when presenting, and you've just spent uh, an hour and a half <laughs> doing one. Uh, so I appreciate you uh, uh, getting out of your comfort zone to, to join us. Well, can, can, I, can I respond to that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I recommend against, I don't do Q&As after my presentations. I know. I'm, ju I'm just, I'm pulling your leg, but yes, go ahead. Well, this didn't have a theme. And so I'm fine with answering questions when the questions don't deviate from the theme. Um, but when I give a presentation, there's a theme. And then I take a question which has really not much to do with the theme. And now I'm just talking to one person and why maybe 500 people are waiting. And uh, the overall impact of the central message of my presentation is lost because I'm now caught up in this question. Uh, and when I get done talking, what I want to leave the room with is the message that I just delivered. 
And if people have questions for me, I want them to take them, I'll take them off to the side. But this was just, this is fine. This is not my discomfort zone. It's actually my comfort zone. I like, I like answering questions, but not if they're going to interfere with a theme that I tried to produce. Yeah, I, I, I get it. I was just kind I of pushing around. I appreciate you teasing me. Um, yeah, and for those who want to hear more about your rationale for doing that, there's the uh, what the behavior analyst to the front of the room uh, article that you've written, and certainly the uh, the last appearance of the podcast. We went over that in uh, quite a bit of detail. So, Pat, this has been uh, a great way to spend a Saturday morning, especially on the heels of my son. <laughs> uh, uh, his basketball team winning in overtime uh, and me getting here just in time. Uh, so, um, everyone else, thanks for joining me this morning too. Sorry for the little technical hiccup uh, getting Zoom going. And um, yeah, I'll see you guys in the Facebook group. Uh, okay. Pat, I will see you at uh, ABBA hopefully and okay. uh, we'll go from there. Bye everybody. See you, Matt. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. You bet, you bet. Thank you for listening to the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria. You can find Matt's notes on this episode at www.behavioralobservations.com. We also invite you to stay connected with us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations and on Twitter at Behavior Podcast.